Revelation chapter 21, just as a reminder before we read the text, we already started working our way through this two weeks ago. It's a little inconvenient that it got broken up by my absence last week. Thanks for understanding and thank you for Larry and Andrew's willingness to step in on short notice. So two weeks ago we had part one of this text and you know this morning I want to examine at home in the holy city part two. So Revelation 21 we'll start at verse 9 and we will read the whole vision all the way through chapter 22 verse 5. There came unto me one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials full of the seven last plagues, and talked with me, saying, Come hither, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, and showed me that great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, and her light was like unto a stone most precious, even like a jasper stone, clear as crystal, and had a wall great and high, and had twelve gates, and the twelve at, and at the twelve gates, at the gates, twelve angels, and names written thereon, which are the twelve tribes of the children of Israel. On the east three gates, on the north three gates, on the south three gates, and on the west three gates, and the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and in them the names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. And he that talked with me had a golden reed to measure the city and the gates thereof and the wall thereof, and the city lies four square, and the length is as large as the breadth, and he measured the city with a reed twelve thousand furlongs, the length and the breadth and the height of it are equal." And he measured the wall thereof, a hundred and forty and four cubits, according to the measure of a man that is of the angel. And the building of the wall of it was of jasper, and the city was pure gold like unto clear glass. And the foundations of the wall of the city were garnished with all manner of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth a topaz, the tenth a chrysoprasus, the eleventh a jacinth, and the twelfth an amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as it were, transparent glass." And I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. And the city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon, to shine in it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it, and the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by Day, for there shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defiles, 
neither whatever works abomination or makes a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb, and in the midst of the street of it, and on either side of the river was there the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servants shall serve him. And they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. On the night the Lord Jesus was arrested, he offered comfort to the hearts of his disciples by saying, Let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. The promise of the Lord Jesus served as a comfort for the troubled hearts of his disciples, and it has continued to be a balm for the burdened hearts of his people for the past 2,000 years. There is, there is a place for you in the Father's house. The Lord Jesus didn't come to merely make you savable. He came to secure eternal life for everyone who would believe. And he rose from the grave. That eternal life was secured because he had defeated death on our behalf. Listen, the Lord Jesus has not crossed his fingers and sort of hope we make it. He has not left your eternal destiny to chance. He has sealed your salvation and confirmed your reservation in a place that he has prepared for you in his father's house. The apostle John, who writes this, as a young man, he was leaning back against the chest of Jesus on the night that Jesus gave that promise. And now as an old man, he comes to the end of this series of visions that we call Revelation, and he gets a vision of this place that Jesus had promised. Earlier, among the other future events, John had saw um, seven angels pour out seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. And now one of those angels in verse 9 takes John up on a high mountain and he shows him the new Jerusalem descending from God out of heaven. This is the vision of the holy city, the eternal dwelling place for believers. In Revelation 21 verses 10 through 21, we see the city's construction. And then in verses 22 through chapter 22, verse 2, the city's characteristics. And then in verses 3 through 5 of chapter 22, he assures us of the city's king. Now, some of that territory we've already covered. But as a reminder, since it has been a couple of weeks, Verses 10 through 21, the, the city's construction, it is essentially a cube measuring 1,400 miles per side. So almost 2 million square miles total, but that's just the footprint of the city. Since verse 16, 
says that the breadth and the width and the height of it are all equal. It is as tall as it is wide and deep. The walls are approximately 72 yards thick and made out of this precious precious stone called jasper. On each side of the city, there's three gates. And so there's 12 gates total. And each gate is constructed of a, a single massive pearl. And above each gate, there is a name of one of the tribes of Israel. And at the foundation below each gate, there is a name of one of the 12 apostles of the Lord's churches. And each gate is decorated individually and uniquely with one of 12 kinds of precious gemstones listed uh, starting there in verse 20 and 21. And there is a street in this city. Now, perhaps there are many streets in this city, but John really only specifies one. There is a street, verse 21, made of pure gold as transparent as glass. We began looking at the city's construction, starting at verse 22. We only got about halfway through that. But when John gets done describing what the city looks like by like its dimensions and its Uh, construction, he starts to explain what the city contains, its characteristics. And instead of seeing what it has right away, he starts with two notable omissions. In verse 22, I saw no temple in it. The temple in the original city of Jerusalem is the place where the Lord symbolically manifested his presence with his people. It's a place where he could be worshipped. If you came to that place, you could worship him. But now what is symbolic is replaced by a greater reality, right? The Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it, John says. He's with his people. His presence is is there in a literal sense. And this is the place where he'll be worshipped. Another omission came in verse 23. It says there's no sun or moon needed. They've, they've passed away with the old creation. And this new heaven and new earth, the shining presence of the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, is the light and the warmth that we need. And then in verses 24 through 27, the gates are open all the time because there's no nighttime there in which to close the gates. There's no danger that can assault the city since the wicked have been already condemned to the lake of fire. And so through these gates, the kings of the nations enter freely. All the redeemed have access to this city and all glory and honor is relinquished to the one individual to whom it belongs, the Lamb, the Lord Jesus alone. Now that's as far as we got last time. So this morning, I want to pick up with the city's characteristics again, starting at the beginning of chapter 22. Look at verses 1 and 2. It says, And he showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding out of the throne of God and of the Lamb in the midst of the street of it. And on either side of the river there was the tree of life, which bare twelve manner of fruits, and yielded her fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This river that is clear as crystal. Look, we've already seen that the entire city, back in chapter 21, verse 11, is described as like a precious stone that's as clear as crystal. The, the city is described in chapter 21, verse 18, as 
uh, pure gold, like clear glass. The street in verse 21 is also pure gold, like transparent glass. And now in chapter 22, verse 1, there is this pure river of life-giving water that is also as clear as crystal. Everything in this city from the, the walls to the river to the roadway is pure and clear to both radiate and reflect the shining glory of God. This river of life-giving water is sort of uniquely situated according to John's description here. The river proceeds, the end of verse 1, the river proceeds out from the throne of God and of the Lamb. That is not two sources. That is a single source. There is one throne of God and of the Lamb because the Lamb is God and he sits on the throne. And so flowing out from the throne as its source, this river <clears throat> takes a, a very unusual path. I know we're reading in an English translation this morning that likely what you're reading indicates that the, verse 2 is the beginning of a new sentence, but it's not. The idea is that this clear crystal river gushes forward from the throne of God and its path is to go down the middle of the street of the holy city. So maybe as we try to imagine this, just maybe, the main street in the New Jerusalem is something like our interstates with multi-directional traffic separated by a median. But in this case, instead of, you know, the classic Illinois dirt and weeds out there, you know, the median is this clear crystal-like river of life-giving water. And if that's not hard enough to imagine, it's hard enough to grasp, the new thought begins in the middle of verse 2 saying that on either side of the river is the tree of life. Now, some commentators have suggested that this reference to the tree of life is not talking about a single specific tree, but instead a, a type of tree. So that this city has the sort of the greatest of all central parks where the river of life-giving water flows through this kind of orchard of trees that are the trees of life. And it certainly makes it easier to visualize this. But it is unlikely that that's John's intent since he uses the singular, it's the tree of life. The tree of life in the New Jerusalem is more likely offered as the heavenly counterpart to the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. All right, two very specific, very literal trees are described in the creation account in Genesis. There's the tree of life, which was freely accessible and available for Adam and Eve to eat from it daily as, as, as often as they were content to enjoy it. And it would give them life. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil grew fruit which God said was forbidden for them to consume. And as you know, they disobeyed God and in eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were immediately and mercifully denied any further access to the tree of life. This is what Genesis 3, and 23 says, The Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now, lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. Right? So in the Garden of Eden, in the absence of sin, 
The tree of life was available for Adam and Eve to enjoy and to live forever. Now in the new Jerusalem, mankind is finally free from the the presence and the power of sin and is once again granted access to a tree of life, which itself, John describes, is like it's as if it's watered by this life-giving river flowing from God's throne. The description is that the tree of life spans the river so that it is, and thus it would have to span the, the roadway as well, so that it is available for access on either side. Now, well, while John doesn't describe the form or flavor of the fruit it yields, he does say that it bears 12 kinds of fruit yielding fruit every month. Now, think about this for a moment because there is no sun There is no moon. How do you mark the passage of time in the New Jerusalem? How do you know how often a month is? Since there's no sun or moon, you wouldn't be able to tell time. It seems to me that John's intention here is to say the tree of life yields 12 kinds of fruit, but does not yield 12 kinds of fruit All at the same time, they seem to rotate in 12 different growing seasons. And that fruit, as it rotates through these 12 different kinds of fruits, is accessible to all. Now, maybe you're worried. I don't like fruit all that much. You know, or I don't like all fruit. I mean, what... What if I'm a big fan of, you know, Nectarine November, but I'm not so crazy about Avocado August? Well, don't worry. It's not going to be like that. I think we're all going to like the, these just fine. But also, this tree isn't just about the fruit. When you look at the end of verse 2, it says the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. That word healing, by the way, is the Greek word therapeia, right? It does not necessarily mean healing a sickness, but can simply describe giving attendance to or care of. Like, think of it this way. It should be evident enough to us that in the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve didn't need the tree of life in order to repair their diseases. They didn't have any. They didn't need healing in that way. But it is a kind of perpetual preventative care plan. John MacArthur, I like, kind of neatly described this as the leaves of the tree can be likened to supernatural vitamins. Now, if that's not enough to get you enthused because you didn't plan on spending eternity chewing on leaves, let me just say, there's nothing in the text that specifically says you're going to be eating these leaves. In this new creation, it's fair to say the rules don't quite work the way that things in this world work. Maybe just being in the presence of the tree of life and near those leaves is enough. Maybe you'll enjoy the leaves as a nice tea. I mean, there is a lot of stuff here that we just don't really completely understand. But whatever it is, I have no doubt that we'll like it. It is the manifestation of God's good plan for us. Now, we've covered the city's construction and the city's characteristics. Let's spend the rest of our time looking at 
Revelation 22, verses 3 through 5, and focus on the, the city's king. Let's read that again, starting at verse 3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him, and they shall see his face, and his name shall be in their foreheads. And there shall be no night there, and they need no candle, neither light from the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So John's vision here continues this theme of paradise restored. We see again at the beginning of verse 3 that what was lost in the garden is regained in the new Jerusalem. He says there will be no more curse. The curse from the mouth of God himself came as a response to sin. The devastating aftermath of our wickedness expands beyond like just a a loss of our, our moral uprightness. We live today in a world that is cursed by the consequences of sin. Eve experienced the consequences of her her sin in increased pain and anguish in childbirth. To the serpent, God said, you are cursed above all other creatures. To to Adam, the word came that, you, you know, cursed is the ground for your sake. To all humanity, the message of Galatians 3.10 is true. It says, cursed is everyone that does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to do them, right? God demanded obedience from Adam and Eve. God demanded obedience from the nation of Israel. God demands obedience from you and from me, and yet we have all disobeyed. And so God, in his love, not only demanded obedience and then ordered the curse as a consequence for disobedience, He also sent his perfect son, Jesus, as the very lamb whose sacrifice rescinded the curse for all who believe. As Paul goes on to say in Galatians 3, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us. And so all those who repent, who turn away from their sin and trust Jesus' work on their behalf, they are redeemed from the curse which sin brings. And instead of serving sin, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of creations, as the king of nations, as the king of our lives. When you you look at this, just look in verse 3. What is it in John's vision, as he says there's no more curse, what is it that replaces this sin-cursed world? Well, just listen to it. There will be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. The curse of sin does not exist where the where Christ the Son reigns. The throne of God and of the Lamb, that is the the focal point of this eternal city. That throne is the the theme that runs through all of Revelation, by the way. You might remember all the way back in Revelation 4 when John first gets this vision of the heavenly throne room. The throne was the central focus Right, He saw the one who was sitting on the throne. There was a rainbow around the throne. There were 12 smaller thrones arranged around the throne. 
coming from the throne were lightning and, and thunder and, and noise. There's seven lamps of burning fire that surround it. There's a sea of glass in front of the throne. There are four creatures from under the throne that are singing songs about the holiness and, and glory and majesty and honor due to the one who's on the throne, right? That throne is the focus. And, and that continues now as John's visions continue. As John sees past the way things are right now and into what we will experience for eternity, the throne is still in focus, right? Look at what we've read. There's a, there's a river of pure life-giving water gushing from the throne. There is a street of gold that leads to that throne. There is a tree of life that spans the river and the street so that it's before the throne. And there's no more curse because the curse, he says, has been replaced by the presence of the throne instead. This is the singular reality of John's vision that we must, look, we must get into our hearts and minds The throne is the focal point of this holy city and that throne is not empty. The Lord Jesus Christ is the King of Kings and that is never going to change. He has not been deposed. He's not gonna abdicate his authority both now and forever. The Lord God omnipotent reigns in the person of Jesus the Lamb on the throne. And for eternity... We will serve him. Look at the end of verse three. And his servants shall serve him. The word serve there is the Greek word liturio. And if that sounds a little bit to you like the English word liturgy, it should. It's a word describing the idea of serving through worship or worshiping through service. This is what we'll be doing forever. Now, if you've ever worried that eternity will be the equivalent of a long, boring church service, I promise you it won't. Verse 5 even says that we'll reign with him. At the very least, that's telling us, look, you are going to have things to do. This is an active place, this city that John's describing. When I was young, my idea of heaven was like it was an amusement park, right? I get to do what I want. I get to ride all the rides. I get to eat the foods I like. I get to play with the best toys, and I get to do it forever. You know, if that's what heaven's going to be like, great. I'll believe in Jesus if that delivers me from hell and, and gets me a ticket to playland, And then I'd listen in church as different preachers describe heaven like this eternal church service where we sing the praises of Jesus and learn all about him and my thinking changed because a never-ending church service doesn't sound as much fun as six flags over New Jerusalem. So relax, God's plan for your future is not the equivalent to an eternal church service of anything that you've experienced. You are not, you are not going to listen to me preach for all of eternity, although some Sundays I'm sure it feels that way. You're not going to be surrounded by people that you can't coax to, to hum along with the hymns. If you've ever found yourself sitting in a church service here and thinking, I can't wait till this is over, 
then describing eternity as like this never-ending church service probably isn't all that appealing to you. But I want you to also know John's vision here is not of a two million square mile amusement park that is created for your entertainment. Let's be clear, the, the Lord Jesus is the king of this eternal city and the focus of all eternity is us serving him. So my concern as a pastor isn't so much that I worry what you think of eternity in regard to you know, comparing it to a church service. I'm more interested in knowing if you could have heaven without Jesus, is that something that you would even want? If I could offer you the eternal life of my, my childhood imagination, right, all the best foods and all the fun times and all the greatest toys you could ever imagine, is that something you'd take? Because did any of you notice my childhood imagination didn't include anything about Jesus? If what you're hoping eternal life looks like is just a, a better vision of this world, a better version of this world where you get to keep all the things that you like and soup them up a little bit and get rid of all the things that you don't like, you're missing that John's vision begins with this creation that we're in being obliterated by a God who says, look, I'm making everything new. The assurance we have in this eternal city is that the Lord Jesus is reigning from the throne and we get to see him and identify with him and serve him, right? No doubt, John's description of the holy city is a fascinating study. A golden street and pearly gates, huge dimensions, translucent materials, a life-giving river, this tree of life. What are these different fruits? How do we use these leaves, right? And it's all there and it's all true. And if you could have all of that and not have Jesus, would you even want it? The Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb, God's Son, is the focal point of all eternity. This text is describing an active place. Look, there's, there's plenty to do, but all of it is serving him by worship and worshiping him through our service. If, if seeing Jesus and worshiping Jesus and serving Jesus for all eternity isn't the desire of your heart, then what makes you think you would want to be in this holy city? And for that matter, we're to live our lives right now in the light of eternity. So if worshiping Jesus and serving Jesus isn't the commitment of your heart right now, what makes you think you'll be in this holy city? John's vision of the new Jerusalem started with like the the construction details and then went to the, the character and the contents of the city of its, itself. But in many ways, it's just been building up to this big finale. The city's king is everything. And not only will we serve him, but John goes on to describe in verses four and five, you'll see his face. His name will be in our foreheads. There'll, there'll be no night there, no need for a candle, nor the light from the sun for the Lord God gives us light and will reign for him, with him forever, right? Seeing him face to face, not even, not even Moses could do that, not really. 
His name will be in your forehead, not the mark of the Antichrist, but the mark of Christ that identifies you as his. Your identity is going to be found in him. There's no more night or, or candles or sunlight because the eternal shining glory of the Lord illuminates us and gives us warmth. John has repeated that several times in this vision. You can look up at at verse 23 in chapter 21. The city had no need of the sun, neither of the moon to shine it, for the glory of God did lighten it, and the Lamb is the light thereof. And John says, we'll reign with him forever. According to his goodness and his kindness, he will fulfill the promise that he's made to those who are faithful and who overcome that they'll reign with him forever. Listen, John's vision here, it should fill your heart with joy. You will be in the presence of Jesus. He'll be your focus. He'll be your light and your warmth and your purpose. The ultimate purpose of the redeemed is to know God and glorify him and enjoy him forever. And if that prospect is not enough to satisfy the desire of your heart, you need to honestly ask yourself if your heart's right with God. Jesus is the focal point of this eternal city. He's the focal point of all of human history. He's the focal point, the, the, our, our purpose and our, our joy and our contentment for all eternity. 